Now podcasting from his Kevin Cave in West Jordan, Utah. Here's Kevin Williams. It is 8.34 in the morning on Saturday, January 12th, 2018. Still have to get used to saying 2018. I'm getting there. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Live Podcast, podcasting to you from my Kevin Cave. want to thank uh, Karen Miller for doing my voiceover for me. And also, I still have plans to have Karen on. In fact, I probably need to call her today at some point. Brian Hyde is my guest. I haven't had a guest in a while. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well. Thanks, Kevin. Oh, good. And uh, let's, we've got a lot to talk about here. Let's, uh, I've uh, done my take on the Bundys, and my opinions have uh, changed, not in a bad way, but uh, you and I discussed, and we'll bring this conversation out here on the podcast later. Uh, I was very opposed of their tactics. I agreed with the message, but opposed to the tactics. Having said that, I've always stood by them because you and I both know that it's more than just the Bundys. Just look at the Hammonds. And uh, I'm sure it's happening to other ranchers that we don't know about. What do you think? It's happening to a lot of ranchers throughout the West. These, uh, the case of the Hammonds, the case of the Bundys, these are just a couple of the more high-profile ones. Before that, it was the Hages in Nevada. Um, this has been going on for a long time. And people who look at the, uh, the Bundy trial coming to a close and thinking, well, you know, it's over. It's finished. No. It's just back to square one. The same conditions that sparked many of these legal battles or, um, you know, this head-to-head with the national government, um, those conditions are still there, and something's going to have to happen or these kind of things will continue to come up. Well, let's talk about uh, the Hammonds really quick since I bought them up, and then uh, we will discuss uh, the events surrounding the Bundys. Why do you think Dwight Hammond chose to go to jail instead of keep fighting the government? I don't think he felt he had a lot of choice. This is this is based on what I have read uh, from statements from the Hammond family. Um, when, when he was ordered back to prison after serving, I forget how long, it was a year and a half, maybe two years, um, the, the judge who had sentenced him originally thought that the five-year prison sentence was just way too long felt that the punishment did not fit the crime. And it was a, a later judge who came along and said, nope, they have to serve the whole five years and ordered him and his son, um, Stephen, back to, to prison. They, they were given a date that they had to surrender themselves. My understanding is that that's the reason that uh, Ammon and others went up to Oregon to protest in the first place. But I don't think the Hammonds ever felt that, uh, you know, they, they had any choice but to submit well, those orders to surrender and, and go back to prison. I know a uh, Oregon uh, former legislator of uh, Oregon who is actually a good friend of mine. I, I'm not going to mention his name on the podcast because I don't want to get sued. But uh, he was asked by somebody to represent the Hammond family. This is during the standoff at the federal building in Burns and everything. And he said, no, I don't want to associate myself with this kind of behavior. Uh, what would you say to that? I don't want to judge this legislator. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he had his reasons. But what would you say to that person? I think it's been very difficult to find any elected officials who have the courage or the understanding of the principles at stake mm-hmm. to be willing to stick their necks out um, for for what the the press and what the federal government have been portraying as you know an, an armed uprising and. Here's the problem, Kevin. Most of what we know, we know because it came to us through the media. 
and that information almost always is extremely worked over before it gets to us. It's why people refer to what happened in Oregon as a standoff mm -hmm. rather than an occupation, which more accurately describes what it was. When these guys showed up at the wildlife refuge, it was New Year's Day. There was no one there. They didn't, uh, they didn't go in there and clear the buildings at gunpoint and kick in doors and order people out. Um, they went there and the place was deserted. Some buildings were unlocked. Those that were locked had a lockbox right there with keys. Nothing had to be broken. These guys were armed, which under the Second Amendment would, should not be cause for alarm. They were, it's, it's not the fact that people have arms. It's what they're doing with those arms. That, that would constitute criminal activity. If you're threatening someone or assaulting someone, then yeah, you've got a problem. But I remember when, when they first got there, I think it was Ryan, or maybe it was Lavoie Finnicum, said the first thing they saw when they drove onto that uh, refuge was a big sign that said, Welcome to your public lands. And from there they decided, well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to occupy this facility to draw attention to the plight of the Hammonds and to educate others. And over the course of the time that they actually occupied those buildings on this federal wildlife preserve, no guns were pointed at each other. You know, they're, they're, the only siege mentality was taking place in town where the FBI took over one of the schools and set up concertina wire and roadblocks and basically turned the, the town into a garrison state. People were very free to come and go out there at the refuge. So, sorry for the long-winded... Uh, uh, dissertation on, on standoff versus occupation, but those little details make a difference in how people perceive it. Terrorists oh, would yeah. engage in a standoff, you know? Activists would engage in a, an occupation. Yeah, well, yeah, when I said the word standoff, I meant the very end when the FBI actually did show up and try to get the people out. But you're right, the uh, it was not a standoff originally. Well, even, even then, the people who were still in the refuge weren't sitting there pointing guns at the, at the FBI. Um, the FBI was maintaining caution because they were trying not to provoke at that point any more violence than had already happened. And the folks inside were just negotiating, you know, how they could peacefully come out. Um, some still believed that they would be able to just walk away from it, but the FBI, of course, wasn't going to allow that. Now, would you call the Ruby Ridge thing a standoff then? Because Randy had no guns pointed at the FBI. Um... But yet was, there were FBI more, agents that's up That's probably there. more of a siege in that uh, he was surrounded by a you know, superior force and, and really had nowhere to go. Yeah, I've actually heard it referred to as a siege before on uh, crime TV, actually. Yeah, yeah, I've forgotten about that word. I never knew what a siege was until I've heard that word to describe it. You're right. Um... Yeah, so really quick here, uh, before we get into the Bundy, since we're still talking about the Hammonds, uh, I watched the standoff, as you know, on YouTube. I felt like I was watching a very intensive movie. It's not one of those things you would watch with kids around, is it? Uh, I'm, um, I'm talking it, about little kids. No, are you, you talking, you're going to have to remind me, are we talking the one um, in Bunkerville? No, the one in Burns. Oh, the one in Burns? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Just, just making sure. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of different video sources there, and so I, I don't know of any uh, video The one in where uh, Gavin was uh, somehow somebody in the in the uh, Federal Refuge Building got a hold of Gavin, and it was about a four-hour okay. standoff. Yeah, Michelle was on uh, there. That was, 
David uh, David Fry. I'm assuming it was David yeah. Fry was on the line, and and Gavin was basically talking him through the. Do you think um, uh, the last stages there? Yeah. Do you think uh, first of all, how did they get the internet connection? Because I understand cell phone service was terrible out there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the logistics were. Okay. But, but that's there's there's again a good point to illustrate. You know, did they, did they endanger people? Did they endanger the town of Burns no. by occupying those facilities out there? They were miles from anywhere. It was really out in the middle of nowhere. So yeah. Um, well, and, and again, the fact that people people could come and go right up until the state police and FBI, you know, created this uh, perimeter around there. Um, there, there was nothing violent that was happening there. No. Um, real quick here, uh, David Fry, do you think that he was an informant or something? Because he was, in my mind, when I was watching the standoff, being a nut job, I hate to say it, but he definitely came across. People were trying to get him to be quiet. And I think even Michelle had to calm him down. Yeah, um... He was obviously under a great deal of stress there at the end, and, and, I, and I think rightfully was was fearful that uh, the, the law enforcement on scene was going to kill him on sight. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sorry, but this is the world we live in, and yeah, um, it's it's a, it's way easier to get yourself killed by law enforcement than than a lot of people would, would realize, particularly in a situation where they're very amped up like this. Yeah, um, I don't know about David being an informant, but I do know that at the end of that occupation, there were more informants, there were more government informants present there at that refuge than there were people who were later charged. Take that for what it's worth, but I believe there were, I think Gary Hunt um, came out with like 15 names of people who were government informants there in uh, in Malvier County. Yeah, and I want to... Uh... Harney County, rather. I want to talk just a little bit more about this, and we'll get into the current situation. Um, I went to a funeral. My great-aunt passed away over the summer, and somebody was there from because uh, my great-uncle, one of my great-uncles, lives in Vancouver, Washington, and his son showed up to the funeral, and I said, what did you think of the standoff in Burns? He said, oh, an FBI agent's in my ward. He talked about that and said that there was a bunch of trash at the building and things like that and I, I really didn't know what to say because I never heard that before was that from the informants or where was that come because it certainly wasn't from the Bundys yeah I don't I don't know there's uh, the, the government's version is that well they trashed things they destroyed things they left it in worse shape than they found it and that goes directly counter to the testimony of a number of people I spoke with who were actually there and said no, these guys were these guys were working the whole time. They were there cleaning the place up. Yeah, and so supposedly I this FBI agent. Oh, what? I just I just question whether that trash was the product of um, you know the occupiers creating the mess, or if it was the occupiers cleaning up the mess that to the bureaucrats had left there, and you know they hadn't had a chance to truck it away or whatnot. Well, but that's what I'm I know wondering. They did, they did a lot of work. Yeah. All right, well, let's uh, get to the current situation. The Bundys uh, have gotten released now. Um, what do you think the future holds for the Bundys? Do you think the government will come back and put more charges against them? But what's, what does the future hold here? Well, with Judge Navarro dismissing with prejudice 
the case against Cliven, um, Ryan Bundy, um, Ammon Bundy, and Ryan Payne, um, those four guys cannot face any of those 15 charges again. I mean, it's that's with with prejudice means that they cannot come back under you know the protection of double jeopardy. They can't come back and charge them with those same charges now. I don't know that uh, you know they can't come up with future charges or that uh, the government won't make another run at their cattle and and try to take them. And uh, I just I don't know. I don't think they will for you know, a while they if they're planning on it. Well, if, if they're smart, they won't just because the awareness is is much greater than it was four yeah. years ago, and and also the awareness that uh, the federal government has not played honestly. They've not dealt oh. honestly with the Bundys or with the American people. And and that should that should cast a lot of doubt on what their motives were in the first place for wanting to take those cattle. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if the government is going to try to collect the fees later and things like that. Um, we'll see, I guess. I hope not. But uh, that's something if if they were if they really wanted to do it, why couldn't they just put a lien against Cliven's uh, 160 acre ranch. Yeah, you know, if, if it was really just about the money, but it's not. It's this is about asserting control and showing who's in charge. And unfortunately, when they decided to do that four years ago, they put uh, a madman by the name of Dan Love in charge of the operation, and he made it the single most militarized, aggressive and heavy-handed operation the BLM had ever seen. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Dan Love, do you think that he is going to go to trial? Is there a way to hold him accountable? What's going to happen to these BLM agents that were involved? I would let, uh, I think it was Larry, uh, Eric, won't off the hook because he was the whistleblower. What about all these other uh, other folks? Well, one of the one of the things you can see from Dan Love's actions is that he operated under the assumption that he was above the law, that he was untouchable. He told people as much. I'm untouchable. I'm bulletproof. They, nothing can get me. And yet he was fired for his misconduct and unethical and apparently illegal behavior in the handling of different artifacts and abusing his authority to um, you know to be able to attend and participate at Burning Man and things like that. So it's not real accountability, considering that uh, we just had, uh, you know, 19 individuals locked up, some of them for more than 700 days, yeah. over something that, that was an exaggeration and, and a manufactured confrontation that was started by the government, not by the Bundys. Yeah, I know Jeanette Finnecombe, uh she was on the uh, Kate Daly show. And she issued a complaint. It sounds like she might go through with the lawsuit, but yeah, we have to keep on the story, and I'm not sure the rest of the alternative media will. Do you think they will? I, and I can understand why they won't. People are tired of talking about it. But I think we need to switch the gears from the Bundys to the BLM agents and have Jeff Sessions investigate in this. Well, I think one of the great things that has come out of this, um, and, and I'm going to use the word miracles, just because yeah. from, from the very beginning I have, I have perceived, and I'm not alone in this, that there's, there's a spiritual dynamic here 
Um, that may drive some people crazy. You know, is he suggesting that God loves the Bundys? But yeah, I am. I'm suggesting that they are good people. And I, I think when Ammon said that when we regain our freedom, it will be clear that it was the hand of the Lord that was at work here. Um, I think that is that is held up to be absolutely true. So um, there's there's a lot of stuff that's going on, and it will continue to go on in this fight. The Bundys are just one family that has been willing to stand up and take the hits for standing up for what they believe in. And Kevin, there just aren't very many people today who would be willing to have their name drugged through the mud or to, to sit in jail and suffer for what they believe in. But every generation needs people that have that kind of character. Um, if, if we want to perpetuate freedom, if we want to hand it down to our kids. And the Bundys get this. The Finnicans get this. The Hammonds get it. But the, the fight is going to continue. My hope is that with like the whistleblower, uh, Larry Wooten, um, his memo detailing how the BLM's quest was more for vengeance than for justice, I think that uh, this may spark some interest now on the state level, as in state legislatures and governors out west, taking notice and maybe coming together as a coalition to to stand up and, and at the very least assert if, if these lands are going to be managed, they need to be managed by people who actually have skin in the game and, and who do not treat our citizens like this BLM task force was treating people. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. Now, just so you know, and the reason I know this is because I talked to a ham operator in uh, Malad, Idaho, and I told him something about the fact that I'd like to go to certain places because there are some very interesting people there and he responded back to me and said yeah there's interesting people over here there's interesting people everywhere I said yeah but not like uh, people who don't pay grazing fees or whatever and he said oh believe me there's uh, I know some people like that over here and they could get in trouble I'll just keep it at that so do you think there's a few other ranchers coming on board um, I don't know of any at this point, but I know there are other ranchers who are likewise um, suffering under bureaucratic, regulatory distress, and it's it's not a situation that can continue as it has, has been. It's we're, we're reaching a critical point where um, at some point something's going to have to give. Um, so the, the discussion on public lands in the West is likely to gain some more traction. I mean, President uh, Trump's decision to reduce the Bears Ears uh, National Monument, I think, plays into this as well. So this could be a year where we see a lot of discussion about public land in the West. I want to ask you something. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the speech, uh, The Constitution, A Heavenly Banner, by Ezra Tapp Benson. And in that yeah, speech, he actually said that uh, the elders of Israel will hold up the Constitution. But he also said, and this gets overlooked, it will not be people in Washington, D.C., nor will it be church leaders. What Do you find truth in that statement? Do you think it's up to people like the Bundys? Or what do you make of that statement? Because I found it interesting that well, he said it will not be church leaders holding it up. I, I think that there is great truth, and there's actually wisdom in that. And people may ask, well, why not? Why wouldn't church leaders... And I would just remind you, if you're, if you're LDS, you, you should understand, um, church leaders already have 
a pretty heavy-duty mission that they're trying to undertake. They're trying to proclaim the gospel to the world, they're trying to perfect the saints who are members of the Church, and they're trying to redeem the dead. And that's, that is the threefold focus of, of what they're doing. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other ways that the rest of us can be making a difference. And, you know, I, I'm going to suggest this again, that I, to, to those who, who don't have a, a you know, spiritual background, I, I can understand if it seems, um, you know, to be a stretch, but I, I've seen it firsthand, and the spiritual dynamic that moved Ann and Bundy to take a stand and that guided the Bundys as they decided how to go about, uh, you know, protecting their livelihood against the BLM coming and taking their cattle and destroying the infrastructure, they, they, were, they were asking for God's help every step of the way. And I really believe that uh, because of their willingness to stand for for true principles, um, that help was there for them. Even though they've been allowed to be taken and wrongly imprisoned and, and you know have suffered, um, that help has still been there. Here's, here's my, the proof in the pudding. If people thought throwing the Bundys in jail for a couple of years would, uh, you know, show them the error of their ways and teach them to shut up and know their place in society, they were dead wrong. What they did was they took a family that was already principled and already strong and essentially um, put them into the conditions under which uh, the human equivalent of, a, of an industrial diamond would be made. You know, the, the pressure and the intensity of, of what they were going through has refined them, and they are strong. And oh, absolutely. With, with, with authority. They speak with the conviction of people who actually have skin in the game. And that is that is powerful. Yeah, I want to ask you, and then I want to get into some other questions, and I want to talk about uh, Judge Gloria Navarre. Um, you mentioned the Bundys were strong, and I know we talked about this off the podcast, but I want to bring a lot of this on the podcast. I don't know. I think maybe it's just me, and I mentioned this uh, on a few podcasts back. Uh, two podcasts ago, by the time this one gets up. I feel, and uh, I don't want to downplay Ammon or anyone else, but I feel a very special spirit when I hear Carol Bundy talk. I don't feel that same spirit with Ammon, or not to say that they're not led by the spirit. I just don't feel it with them. But I definitely feel it with uh, Carol. Is it just me, or am I missing something, or what? why do you think that is? I think you would find people who would maybe say, you know, the, the exact opposite. Say, well, it's when Ammon speaks that I really, you know, feel like, you know, that's that's a godly man, and maybe not so much with other family members. So it can, it can vary from person to person. I've had a chance to interact with most of the Bundy family members over this last few weeks, and I will tell you my impression is every one of them is they don't just talk the talk. These, these people are walking the walk of, of what it means to be a believer. Um, the, the faith that they have exercised is amazing. I mean, you know, for crying out loud, Carol brought Cliven's cowboy hat with her. I, uh, on yeah, January I saw 8th, that on the video. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah, what a... And, and I, had, I had talked with her the day before, and, and you know, the talk was all about her faith that, you know what, I, I just feel at peace and I'm confident that uh, God is in charge and 
so she just she just said, "I'm going to take his hat and trust that uh, you know the, that the Lord's going to make the right thing happen." And that's that's pretty much been my experience with them all along. They, I mean, they have been through some really horrendous stuff. Most people can't even begin to relate to what it would be like to be falsely imprisoned. But none of them are talking with bitterness or with hatred or anger. In fact, Ammon said it best. He said, he goes, I, I've cried all the tears I'm going to cry, but he says, I'm not hardened and I'm not angry at you know those who have, have imprisoned us or prosecuted us. I mean, they, they love them. Um, Ryan prayed for Judge Navarro out there in the hallway before we went into court on January 8th. And, I mean, he really prayed for her. It wasn't a prayer that, Lord, make her do what we want her to do. It was a prayer for her well-being and her heart and her mind. And and you could just, you could feel the sincerity that, that Ryan was, was expressing. And I don't know. I'll tell you something, Kevin. As the judge was 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 making her announcement regarding the dismissal of the case, I felt the spirit of God in that courtroom, and that surprised me because that's not a place where I expected to feel it. But um, I think there was a tremendous amount of faith being exercised on the part of the people in that courtroom. I know that as she went to make the announcement, my head was bowed in prayer. And I, I wish I could talk to Judge Navarro. I would. The question I would love to ask her is, how many heads in your courtroom were bowed in prayer when you made that announcement? Because I, I'm almost certain the answer would be most of them. Most of the people who were in there, you know, observing, I think, had their heads bowed in prayer. And I, I wonder, you know, what effect that might have had on her. Yeah, I was going to ask, what do you think made Judge Navarro change because she was really taking the hard line of uh, at least from an observer the government knows everything what do you think do you think it was God that made her change what do you think happened do you think it was just all the evidence piling up I don't know what caused the change but I know that there was definitely a change Um, when I walked into her courtroom for the first day of that trial um, I was fully committed to I am not going to like this judge based on you know her behavior and the way that she had uh, so strenuously restricted the defense in the past two trials. And I was surprised, and I was wrong to go in with that assumption because she actually was was very even-handed. And you know, it's that's not to say that she she didn't appear to favor the defendants, but she when she allowed them to get information out that wasn't allowed in the first two trials and as it became clear that the prosecution had had not only been um, withholding evidence from them but deliberately keeping it from them um, she had a very difficult choice to make and that choice was to dismiss the charges with prejudice and that's got to be tough I feel for her something something reached her heart I you know I know all through the trial people were praying and the Bundys kept asking pray that this judge will have a softening of her heart. Um, so I don't know for sure what softened her heart, but I would definitely say it, it appears that, that something shifted, and and I'm, I'm grateful that it did. I think she, she had a very difficult decision to make, and, and she did the right thing, and that may come at some cost, you know, where she's, she's a political appointee. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think would have happened, I even hate to speculate this, 
but I have to bring it up. What do you think would have happened if there was a mistrial or the Bundys did not get off? What do you think would have happened? Um, if it had gone to the jury, they would have been acquitted. That's what would have happened. The, the jury saw through what the prosecution was trying to do, and, and in fact, so much so, um, you, uh, you've got to understand, when the jurors were released from their, you know, their official duties, the first thing they did was step down and go up and hug Ryan Bundy and go up and talk to him and talk to the defense attorneys, and, and, and the jurors made it very clear, we were not going to convict you. Now, when I was standing in line to get in the courtroom last Monday morning, um, I looked behind me, and there were at least a half dozen jurors standing there. They came back on their own. And it's because they, they said they wanted to see it through to the end, and and they obviously felt, uh, you know, a, a connection and an affinity for for the Bundys. You know, we I heard them ask, you know, is this the outcome you guys wanted? And they were like, yes. So they, they would not have convicted. And frankly, if this next tier of defendants does go to trial on February 26th, that would be um, Joe O'Shaughnessy, uh, Jason Wood, um, Dave Bundy, and Mel Bundy. If they actually go to trial and a jury is seated, if the same evidence is allowed to be presented as was in this last trial, I really believe these guys will be acquitted too. Oh, I don't Dave think Bundy and all that? America right now. Yeah, oh. I don't think you'll find a jury in America at this point that would convict these men. Dave uh, and Mel are still on are still going to trial. I thought that all of them were dismissed. Um, the the dismissal unfortunately did not affect them. So oh. they're on pretrial release. They have you know ankle monitors and they um they they they're restricted. They have curfew or they have um, house arrest conditions depending on what their pretrial officer tells them. So no, they're. They're not out from under, you know, the the cloud just yet. But you know, some pretty hopeful stuff has happened here, and and we'll see what uh, we'll see what comes up. What is going to happen? Do you think uh, with Ryan Payne? Uh, he's doesn't he in uh, prison in Oregon? Yeah, he's uh, he's been sent back to Oregon where where he took a, a plea deal. And this is not uncommon, you know. The, the feds really stack the charges up, and they um, they overcharge wherever possible. So it makes it more attractive when someone says, well, "Okay, well, you're looking at 340 years in prison, or you can take this plea deal and serve three years or six years or whatever, and you know, plead to a lesser charge." And so you can see why it would be it would be attractive for for these guys. Um, Ryan Payne took the plea deal up in Oregon. But since the acquittal up there of, uh, you know, the, the seven who were tried, I think he has asked for a reversal or asked that uh, that, uh, that guilty plea be, be set aside. And I don't know if that can be done. I know he, he definitely wants to go back. I'm sure most of the guys there who took plea deals are, are wishing maybe they had held out. Do you think it was bad that he took the plea? Because there is a philosophical argument. If I don't take the plea, I'll stand up for what I believe in and make a statement. What's your opinion on that? Well, if you were facing hundreds of years in prison versus you may have to serve a few years or a couple of years and then go home, I think, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big gambler. I'd probably want to go with what was the least risky route. 
So I, I don't fault them. I don't think they were weak. I don't think that they were turncoats or that they didn't uh, didn't believe what they believed. But look at the impossible situation they were placed in. I think they just did what they felt was best at the time. Yeah, the part, one of the concerns I had with the Bundys is uh, maybe there would be a plea deal and there would be a gag order, and then that would really mess up journalism in America and the BLM and any government agency really would have all kinds of power. What do you think? Well, something's got to be done to, to address that power and, and address that lack of accountability. It's just, it's not going to, it's not going to continue like it is. So you, you really think it, it other can't. ranchers are going to stand up then? I, they, they will. I don't know who, and it may just be a tiny minority of them. I, I just, I don't know. But uh, as, as long as an agency like the Bureau of Land Management is allowed to um, create law with the stroke of a pen or create rules that have the force of law you know, with the stroke of a pen, as long as they go out there and, and abuse people at gunpoint, um, that's, that's going to be a problem. But I think the states are the ones that are ultimately going to have to cor- correct it. Um, individual ranchers standing up here and there um, may bring awareness, but they're still going to get picked off one by one, you know, and, and either drug through court or um, otherwise, you know, forced into submission. The states now need to step up and interpose themselves between their citizens and a federal bureaucracy that uh, shouldn't exist in the first place but now that it does exist, is, is behaving uh, verifiably abusively. Well, let me ask you this, because uh, I know there are ranchers out there, those that are paying their fees and all that and are keeping themselves going. How do you think they're doing it? Because I understand well, ranching is not cheap. No, and when the, when you have an agency that can come along and reduce your uh, the units of of how many cattle you can graze, that has direct relation to whether or not you can remain profitable or not. You know, if you if you want to get into ranching and just lose money every year, then uh, sure, it doesn't matter how many cows you have out there grazing. Maybe they'll only allow you two or three cows. But um, but the problem is these these uh, regulations over the grazing have been used as a tool to force ranchers out of business or to encourage them strongly that uh, perhaps they should just sell you know, their, their water rights, grazing rights, and, and they should you know, find something else to do. Yeah, so how do you think the ones that are still paying their fees and such are still surviving to this day? Um, it's going to vary from rancher to rancher. You know, some of them have, uh, have larger allotments that they're working with, and therefore they have more cattle. Um, but the, the, the question that I, I wish more people would ask is, should an agency like the Bureau of Land Management be able to directly um, attack someone's livelihood, especially in the absence of harm being shown? This, the, the whole reason that the, the, the BLM became so aggressive toward the Bundys was at the behest of environmentalist groups like the Center for Biological Diversity and, and, and some of the other... Uh, lobbyist groups who are environmentalists who exercise immense power in Washington, D.C., but don't actually, you know, they, they don't even use the land out there. They just, they want to, to see federal power used to 
pursue their interests, and they're very, very good, and they're very well-funded at making this happen, but they're also the ones who, who essentially urged the feds to have this confrontation. In fact, they're urging right now for the feds to go in and with force take the Bundy's cattle again. I can't think of a more cowardly, you know, example of the, the kind of people. Let's you and him fight. Yeah. Well, that bridges me right into something uh, philosophical slash religious discussion. But um, I know I asked you this earlier, but I had, that was when I had you on for the first time. Uh, where do you draw the line? Because in the church, and I want to get more into that. Well, first of all, let me just say this. Uh, on my, well, two podcasts ago, I said that I think Cliven should have paid his fees, and if he had to move off the land or sell his property or whatever, then mm-hmm. get a coalition of ranchers together and go lobby, because I have been a lobbyist in the past, and I can tell you, lobbyists, lobbying works. Now, uh, you said that apparently he's tried that before, him and Lavoie Finnicum, and it didn't work. Well, lobbying is good if you're looking for political solutions. But in this case, the solution needs to be that the government needs to be restrained and returned to its proper role. So um, asking the government to fix itself is probably not going to happen, particularly given that, um, you know, if, if you want to influence policy in Washington, D.C., I think the Pew Research Center did, the, the, um, did a study on this about 10 or 15 years ago, and they found that the average person cannot affect policy in Washington, D.C., or influence it. But special interests certainly do. I mean, they, they, they have deep pockets. They have the ear of congressmen. The problem you run into with the BLM is this is an unelected bureaucracy, so they, they just simply have to get Congress to uh, agree on their budget, and there's really no accountability there as far as how are you spending your money. They are... Uh, they're funded every year because they're considered an essential part of government. But there's no accountability to the taxpayers. There's no accountability to the voters. And so they get to operate out of that uh, that possibility of being held accountable. And I think that's where the abusiveness comes from. Do you think that uh, they could have lobbied, though, just to get the re- uh, fees reduced and maybe just have special... It's not about the reduction of the fees. The problem, the problem that Cliveland was having, the reason he stopped paying those fees to the BLM is because they turned those fees into a tool where you had to sign a contract when you paid your fees. And by signing that contract, you were converting or allowing the BLM to treat your water and grazing rights, which they own. They don't rent them. They own those rights as, as if they're just a privilege that can be either granted or withheld at uh, the government's discretion. And that's why he wouldn't play that game. He said, no way, I'm not going to lose these water rights. Well, also, uh, wasn't the BLM mismanaging the land once the ranchers started paying those fees and didn't Cliven get a smaller allotment of land each time? Or I heard something like that. Well, they were definitely trying to uh, to reduce his uh, allotment to where he, he would not be able to run enough cattle out there to, to make it uh, feasible. But most importantly, they were trying to get those water rights. And those are, you know, this is where Ryan Bundy did, I think, a really good job of explaining 
you know, how those rights come into being for beneficial use, how you have to um, claim, the, claim those rights, you have to use them, you have to defend them. And, and that, goes, uh, that goes beyond, you know, the creation of the BLM. These rights existed before the BLM. It would not be right for government to just come in and say, well, we decided to change this regulation and now these things no longer apply. These are private property rights. Doesn't matter who holds the title to the land. The person who owns the grazing rights or owns the water rights has the right to those resources. It's an enforceable right. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, it doesn't mean they, they can stop other people from using the land for other multiple uses, but those are theirs. And and that's... Yeah, it, so in other words, if people I, understand that. Yeah, so if I wanted to come in and use their water as long as I had permission from Cliven or any rancher, then it'd be fine, just not the government, I think was his point. Well, what, what it means is that... Uh, if you wanted, if you wanted to uh, hike, or you wanted to, you know, hunt, or camp on that land, it's still public land. The only thing you can't do is is take take the water or take the the grass that Cliven has the rights to. Yeah. So again, they were, they were. It's not about he just wanted to lock the land up, or he wanted to use it for himself. People who say, well, he owes the American people money because he used this land, they're they're missing the point. First of all. That's land that uh, most people wouldn't even be able to find on a map. Few people have ever been out there. It's a very inhospitable environment. And and lastly, he put in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of improvements, ponds and you know collectors and pipelines that benefited every living creature out there on that that desert, not just his cattle. And yet when the BLM came to take his cattle, they brought in earth-moving equipment, they brought in backhoes, dump trucks, and they tore out that infrastructure. That wasn't even part of the impoundment order, but they went ahead and destroyed. And yet these environmentalists would look at Cliven and say, well, he's the one who's being destructive to the land. Yeah, by the way, you might be interested to know, I listened to Glenn Beck which is a surprise, because I used to really be into Glenn Beck, and he really uh, betrayed me, uh, starting back when the uh, Bunkerville incident was going on in 2014. Now he's standing up for the Bundy. Do you think he had a change of heart? Do you think he was bribed? What do you think happened? Is it convenient um, for him now? Well, it's definitely safer to, to stand up for the Bundys than it was back when he threw him under the bus. So I'm sorry if that sounds a little bit bitter, uh, but he, Glenn was he did. Glenn was Glenn was one of a number of hosts who initially, you know, were were curious and maybe even somewhat supportive. But as soon as uh, somebody raised the cry of racism, you know, over over Cliven's comment where he said the word Negro, then oh, um, yeah. you know those guys they they cut and and ran. And I'm sure it was to protect their own brand or protect their own skins, um, but. Yeah, it's it's. I guess I'm I'm not super impressed with the people who wait until it's safe to be against something or to to stand with something. I mean, like for a person to come out today and say, you know, Kevin, I am uh, I'm totally against slavery. How brave do you have to be, really, to be against slavery today? It's like, oh wow, that's wow. I've, I've never heard anybody say that. I 
Well, you need to even say that in public. I can't believe No, everybody's against slavery, so you're not risking anything by saying something that you know everybody's going to agree with. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was actually Glenn Beck, to me, always seemed kind of opposed to what them, and then Sean Hannity was really sticking up for the Bundys until Cliven made that comment, and then Clive, or, uh, Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity got together. It was, an, it was interesting. Yep. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, I need to be forgiving and just understand everybody operates according to their, to their best understanding of the facts of the time. And it's, and it's possible, even, even now that Glenn has, has taken a more supportive tone toward the Bundys, he still is missing some facts. There's still some things that are incomplete in, in his take. And I can forgive him for that. I'll, I'll cut him slack in those areas where I'm lacking. Please, you know, cut me slack. Well, I, 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 who, there's the problem with this case is there's so much information. That's why I'm bringing you on because I might, I may have glossed over something. I'm open to the idea that I may have glossed over something. I hope not, but it, it's possible. There's so much information about the case and so much of it is coming from different places. It's sometimes hard for me to know what's true and what's not. No, understood. And, and people who, the people who seem to have the strongest feelings about this are typically the people who have gotten most of what they know about this case from mainstream media. And, you know, this is not me telling them, you're wrong, you're all wrong. It's, it's, it is me suggesting, though, what you have been told is incomplete. You have part of the picture, but you're missing some very essential parts. And this is something that every jury so far has caught on to, and therefore that's that's why you've seen acquittal after acquittal, hung juries, mistrials, you know, and uh, ultimately, you know, the guy who, who we thought would be held most accountable was Eric Parker. And uh, Eric is the guy who is famous for, he's the guy in the picture on the freeway overpass, lying on his belly with a rifle aimed between the jersey barriers. And that was considered, you know, the most slam-dunk, proof-positive look. They assaulted federal agents, but the government could not convict him of anything like that. And ultimately, he and Scott Drexler, they were acquitted of all but just a, a small handful of charges, and then the government approached both these guys with a, a plea deal and said, why don't you plead to a misdemeanor of obstructing a court order, and you know we'll give you credit for time served, and call it good. Whatever so happened... Oh, that's, go ahead. that's what they did. My, my point is this. It was a misdemeanor. The guy who should have been, I mean, the poster child for, see, this is domestic terrorism, they couldn't even convict him of a firearms charge. Whatever happened that to Pete... That tells you how flimsy the case is. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to Pete Santilli? Pete is, uh, Pete is out of prison. He's out of jail um, and has started doing his show again. I... I have not followed closely enough to tell you other than he is out there doing what he does best um, and just he's, he's proclaiming truth, you know, and... Okay, because I, I understand I, I he don't, took I don't a, have any more to tell you. I understand he took a gag order, so I'm wondering if he's even talking about this case anymore. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I want to get into... It, it, oh, go ahead. Isn't it interesting, though, that the guy, you know, Scott or Scott Drexler and um, 
Eric Parker, the guys who, who the government was most sure they would be sending away for several lifetimes, yeah. could, only, could only be convicted of a misdemeanor, and even so, these guys still get to vote, they still get to own guns, because they're not convicted felons. Yeah, oh, I, I want to get into one more question before we get into a religious-slash-philosophical discussion. Um, Joseph Smith said, or supposedly, there's even uh, speculation now that he even said that, that the U.S. Constitution will be hung by a thread, and the elders of Israel will say that. First of all, do you think he said that, or say, he obviously must have said something to that effect what is your interpretation of that? Because people say, oh, I think Mitt Romney's won. No, I don't think so. Um, no, I think uh, there, there have been, a, I think, enough witnesses who heard him say words to that effect that I, I don't think there's any doubt that he, he said something to that effect. He had to, um, have, yeah. As far as who it's going to be, um, I think we, we have a tendency, we're trained from a very young age, to look... To authority, look to somebody to be in charge, and somebody else will make that decision. And I wish more people understood that um, God doesn't always go to people in authority. In fact, oftentimes people in authority are, are part of the problem, and the solution starts with with average people. Yeah, and that's that's where I think each one of us has a role to play in terms of. Uh, upholding the Constitution, and, and by when I say upholding the Constitution, I want to make clear, I'm, I'm talking about the larger idea of upholding the principles and practices of liberty. The Constitution is a big part of that, in that it created the federal government, it called it into existence, and at the very same time, it very carefully and clearly defined, enumerated, and limited the powers that government could exercise, leaving everything else to the states and to the people to deal with their own governance. So people have to understand that. Political leaders, it's in their interest not to understand that because it limits their power, it limits their ability to use the system for, for their own interests rather than the interests of the people they're supposed to be serving. Yeah. Oh, I want to ask one more question. Uh, Matt Shea, do you think he was very effective in getting the information out? Do you think that may have, uh, you know influenced uh, Gloria Navarre's decision? She did like cite the Wooten memo in her decision to uh, dismiss the case with prejudice, so um, she definitely has seen the Wooten memo. Um, I don't know what, if anything, that uh, that may play, you know, in, in this upcoming trial for Dave and Mel Bundy and, and the other two, uh, um, O'Shaughnessy and, uh, and Wood, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's now, it, 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 uh, definitely, it definitely, Matt Shea was, was very helpful in bringing out the awareness of the Wooten Memo. My hope is that individuals like him and Dorothy Moon, who's a representative in the state of Idaho, um, I mean, they're fighting an uphill battle. It's very rare to find a politician, uh, or I, I'm not even going to call them politicians, because that sounds too much like an epithet. Um, it's hard to find an elected leader who is willing to stick their neck out. And, and Matt Shea definitely stuck his neck out. And as has Dorothy Moon and, and others, but there's just so few of them. We need more of the state legislators to to step up and, and be counted. And I think too many of them may be addicted to federal money to, to want to risk, you know, interfering with that. 
Yeah, and uh, is Gloria Navarro going to be the judge for Mel Bundy and David Bundy? That I don't know. I believe she will be, but I, I don't know that with certainty. I know there's there will definitely be some changes on the prosecution team. There's a new acting U.S. attorney who's uh, who's been brought in, but um, yeah. It would yeah, be very interesting to see how this, this next one proceeds. Yeah, you said the uh, former acting attorney general, Steve Myrie, had Harris standing up on the back of his neck. Do you think he's uh, he, in he, trouble he, he, now? He, 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 he ran at the, you know, like embarrassed or angry or... Um, I, the, stuff, the stuff that his team is accused of doing in prosecuting the Bundys is very serious stuff. I mean, people may try to explain it away as it's a misstep, but um, you are talking about people who were given the authority over life and death, given authority to determine whether someone has life, liberty, or property, and they abused that authority. They, they gamed the system and tried to slant things in such a way that, uh, that the system could not lose. I think uh, Ryan, it was either Ryan or um, Ammon put it this way, they dug a pit for the Bundy family, and, and it's a pit that they fell into themselves. Yeah. I want to get into uh, some conversation here. Uh, I know we touched on this on the first podcast, but it's been a while, and I have some new questions to ask. Uh, first of all, the Bundys are still Temple Recommend holders, correct? Yep. Now... Yep. One of the uh, issues, and it's interesting, I completely forgot about this until I had a dream about uh, this over Christmas break. I had a dream about, uh, believe it or not, somebody trying to beat up Bo Greitz. It was very interesting, and I woke up and remembered. Yeah, Bo Greitz, uh, was he excommunicated? There's conflicting reports out there. I don't know what's, what's true about that. I know he left the church over taxes, did he not? My understanding is that, uh, yes, he left the church, but I don't know any of the details whether that was... I don't think know, he was excommunicated. Yeah, I, I, so I, I don't know for sure. Okay, but I know he had a run-in with the general authority because he wouldn't pay his taxes, correct? Um, I don't know about that. I just know that I, I don't have any specific information, I guess is what I'm saying. I know he did. He was at odds because he was, he was not paying taxes, and, and the church was telling him that, uh, sorry, but that's, that's a part of what you have to do, you know, to be in your standing. You can't, uh, you can't be knowingly breaking the law. Yeah. Um, so what's the difference between what Bo Greitz did and what the Bundys did, because obviously, as far as we know, the Bundys are not at odds with the church because they still have temple recommends. Yeah, and, and technically, they're, they're, I don't think they're breaking any laws. They're disregarding some bureaucratic rule that is being, you know, told to them or has been directed at them, but they're also standing up to defend their livelihood which is in the process of being destroyed. And, and I think the fact that Clyburn Bundy is the last man standing out of more than 50 ranchers there in Clark County, he, um, he did that to preserve his livelihood, not to take advantage of his neighbors or, you know, or even pillage the land. And here's the, the kicker. There's no, there's no right way. There is no perfect way to, to 
engage in civil disobedience. When Rosa Parks refused to sit in the back of the bus, that caused commotion. That caused people to be um, angry, unkind, even hateful towards her for messing with the system that was working just fine. But, uh, but she did it, and she suffered for it because it was the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm drawing a comparison here between Rosa Parks and, and the Bundy family. They have stood up for their rights, and they've done it peacefully. It was the government who came charging with guns drawn and, and escalating things to a, a, a dangerous, dangerous level. Yeah, the Bundys, and the, the Bundys have, have, been, they have, have not been the aggressor here. And so, you know, when, when, when people question, how can they be, you know, Latter-day Saints in good standing? I know, uh, I know Davey, when he was first in, in federal custody right after they, they came and grabbed him, um, he was in the detention center, I believe it was in Ogden. And there's a, there's a uh, branch president who's assigned to, you know, the, the people who are incarcerated, came through and, and was asking if there was anybody who wanted a blessing. And, and Dave, you know, said, yeah, definitely. And then and that blessing, you know, was told, the Lord knows you're innocent. Well, this guy didn't know him from anybody, but, you know, it's... I share that just, that's just amazing. to amazing. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of little miracles, tender mercies that happened for the Bundy family, and and I'm not saying this to brag and you know make people yeah they're so much better than anybody else and they think that they can do no wrong. No, they are humble, but they are humble in such a way that um, I really believe that uh, I think the Lord strives with them, and I'm imagining the distress that saying something like that is causing people to think well. You know, what I know about the Bundys is, you know, they're this and that, the welfare ranchers, and, you know, and, and they're radicals. And I, 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 all I can say is, you need to get to know them for yourself. Um, do you know who um, Lindsay Hansen Park is? Are you familiar with her? Oh, yes, am I ever. Okay, she is... Uh, Very liberal. She, she is one of the most courageous people that I know. Because she had heard about the Bundys. She had heard, you know, all of the, the horrible tales, their white supremacists, their terrorists, whatever. She heard the very worst of the worst. But unlike the people who sit back and just believe what, whatever they've been spoon-fed, she said, I want to see this for myself. And she traveled and went down to Nevada and actually spent a couple of days with Ryan and Lance Bundy. And then Lindsay came back. And, and she said, look, I'm not saying that I've come over and I've become a full-on supporter, but she said, what a difference it made to talk to this family and to see really? them for who they were. And she said, the biggest injustice that has been done here is that the media has allowed them to be converted into a one-dimensional headline. And I went, that is brilliant. She is right on. She and said she, that? Yes. Yes. Wow! And she uh, talked, yeah, some she of talked the... about. She talked about how she says whatever Ryan Bundy is, she says you know he's a man of God. Oh my gosh! And, and, I'm surprised that Lindsay Hanson Parks would say that, based on what I've heard well, her in her interviews and, and such. It's it's because she encountered new truth, and she incorporated that into her life, and 
And sometimes when that happens, we have to change our thinking. This is true for all of us. And that's really the measure of how intellectually honest a person is. When you encounter new truth, incorporate it into your life, into your thinking, do you have to change your thinking? Yes. And if the answer is, you know, and if the answer is no, then what do you do? Well, I'm even tighter. I don't want something threatening him. Well, in, yeah. in Lindsay's case, she was very courageous, and she wrote this um, incredible Facebook post um, explaining that uh, the Bundys had been terribly misjudged, and that uh, she was she was doing what she could to to help set the record straight. Um, and and it's it's kind of a price. I mean, she has she has lost friends. She has had many of her supporters turn on her because this has been such a polarizing issue. And yet, all she did was she went to the source, she saw for herself, and then honestly discussed what she had seen. And and people... You there? Uh-oh. Uh, you there? Oops. Hang on, folks. Maybe the government's uh, hacking into this. What's going on? Results for Kovacs Castle's quotation from Explorer. Skype trademark left right and right right attached to Vimsworth email.com. Skype trademark. Untitled star dash total reporter. Untitled star dash. Pause button. Stop button. That's really amazing about Lindsay Hansen Park. She's uh, pretty liberal. I don't know if you've read her blogs or anything. She's really anti-Donald Trump and all kinds of things. So that that amazes me. Well, I think she's, uh, I think she's a great human being for recognizing that there was a disconnect in what she was being told about these people and taking the time to to go out there and prove it for herself. Absolutely. Um, to me, the, the the proof of her integrity is found in she has she has paid a price. You know, she has supporters and um, donors and so forth that have have turned on her. But I, I admire her courage and I admire her being willing to to speak up when she saw someone else being abused. I think that that speaks extremely well for her. When did she do this, by the way? Um, this was. Well, this was back in December. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Early December. I want to get uh, philosophical and religious, uh, even though we've done this on the first podcast. It's been a while. Uh, the Church has a uh, the Article of Faith, 12th Article of Faith, we believe in being subject to kings, rulers, magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. So, uh, when you decide to do things like not paying your grazing fees and all that, because I assume that this is the same thing that Bo Greitz got in trouble with, with the general authorities not paying his taxes, uh, wanting a temple recommend. Where do you draw that line? Because I don't mean to sound harsh, but if you say, I'm not going to obey this law, I'll obey this law, I'm not going to pay taxes because I don't like the corrupt government, well, eventually, if a lot of us start doing that, we start an anarchy, don't we? So where do you draw the line? Well, I'm one of those people who doesn't think anarchy is a bad thing. 
I think uh, all, all it denotes, if you break it down into the, the root parts of the word anarchy, is it describes being in a state without a ruler. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you can't rule yourself. It doesn't mean that you can't uh, voluntarily, you know, come up with solutions between you and your neighbor. But the, the idea that there are good laws and there are bad laws has to be understood in order for people to understand, are, are there times when you are justified in resisting unjust or abusive actions? So it's not a matter of, well, we're just going to go out and break laws and make sure that we're imposing on other people or hurting other people. Um, when it's a defensive act or it's, it's de- defensive uh, disobedience, you know, civil disobedience, mm-hmm. um, there's no right way to do it. You're never going to get permission. It will always be labeled illicit by those in authority, but sometimes it's still the right thing to do. The people who refuse to return fugitive slaves to their owners in slave states, technically they were breaking the Fugitive Slave Act laws. Yeah. But I still think they did the right thing in that uh, even though they were subject to, you know, presidents and kings and and so forth, there was there was a higher law that came in, into power here, or that came into, into play at least. And for those who are worried, well, does this mean that the Bundys are just, you know, a law unto themselves? No. The only lawless organization or the only lawless entity in this equation right now is the government. Absolutely. Or people acting on behalf of government. Yeah. Absolutely true. And uh, why do you think Bo Greitz got in trouble then with the general authorities for not paying? Is it because he was militant, maybe? Well, I, I don't know. I'm, you know, I wasn't privy to those private conversations. Mm-hmm. I know that um, if if you are uh, convicted of tax crimes, oftentimes you will lose your um, status or your membership in the church. That can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I don't know what happened in, in his case. I don't know if it was his choice to have his name taken off the church records or if there was some kind of disciplinary court, but... Um, like I, like I mentioned earlier, church leaders have their own mission that they're trying to fulfill, and the rest of the, the stuff that's left up to us, that's where we have got to be more um, willing to step up and shoulder responsibility. Somebody's got to say something. Oh, and absolutely. Be unpopular. And uh, they, I've they even will, Without any question, they will be unpopular for saying so, but it's still the right thing to do. Yeah, I've been speaking up a little bit more lately, if I know a lot of information. Uh, I used to be, I don't want to say ignorant, but I used to be just kind of one that would sit back. and. But certain things that I know about, such as the Bundy case, when somebody says something wrong, I speak up right away. And I think, yeah. I th- I think we should. Um, you're not sure what the future of the Bundys holds then. You you think they're just going to continue to raise cattle? I know Cliven's getting older and it's got to be he's got to be recuperating from all the treatment in jail. I'm sure that he's got a lot of weight to put back on and such the way that he was treated there. I yeah, I don't know what the, his immediate plans are, but I know that the Bundys are fully aware that while the trial may have come to a close, they're the fight is still very much on. And so yeah. they're they're going to continue carrying the message forward, and I suspect what, what's going to surprise people is they're going to see this become a much bigger deal 
than anybody thought it could. All the people who said, oh, it's over and done when the boy was killed or when the Bundys were in jail, it's done. You know, stick a fork in it. Nothing more could happen. They've all been confounded to some degree, maybe several times, as juries refuse to convict and, and the government uh, has more and more egg on its face. You know, for, for a family of, uh, you know, cowboys that, you know, some people seem to think wouldn't have sense to come in out of the rain, um, these guys have had a pretty powerful effect and, and a peaceful effect. They haven't had to shoot anybody or point guns at anybody, you know, to, to get their message out. They just needed other people to be aware of what was happening and, and recognize the reality that the aggressor was not the Bundys. I have never a, was from the beginning of this fight. Yeah, I have uh, two questions for you. Have you heard of uh, Tom Draschel? Uh, I can't say that I have. That name does not ring a bell for me. Tom Dreschel used to be on K-Talk years and years ago, back in 2003 to, oh no, way back, back 2001 to, I don't know, 2004, I think. Anyway, somebody called his show and said, what's going to happen in five or ten years from now? Tom Dreschel said, I don't know about five years, but ten years from now, now mind you, this is back in 2001, he said ten years from now, which would have been 2011, there's going to be a fight for freedom more than ever that you have seen in this country. Do you think that's true? Do you think there was such a thing? Because I'm not seeing it back in 2011, but I do want to ask you a follow-up question when you're done. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that quote, but I would agree with the concept in the sense that um, as a society we have been moving a particular direction, and it has not yeah. been in the direction of greater freedom and, um, you know, more restrained government. If anything, government is intruding into more and more areas of our lives. And we're reaching the point where it's going to come to a head. People are going to recognize that we are being backed into a corner, and it'll, the, the big question will be how many are going to say no, no more, and how many will just say, okay, you know, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do, is just make sure my leaders know that I love them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I was listening to Glenn Beck, uh, as you know, and uh, I listen. If I listen to him, it's the podcast now because I don't like hearing commercials much anymore. But he was uh, mm-hmm. predicting what's going to happen in 2018. One of his predictions was that you are going to see, or we are going to see, a little bit of a renaissance for freedom. And you kind of answered that. But do you see that more now than maybe 2011? I definitely see greater awareness than there was prior to what happened in Bunkerville and prior to um, the occupation of the wildlife refuge in Oregon. Um, unfortunately, it's it kind of ebbs and flows. You know, there are people who become keenly aware of these things when something's happening, but then the news cycle moves on and our attention wanders. And, and so sustaining that kind of um, interest and activity becomes the challenge. I'll tell you this, I've met a lot of people who came to follow that trial, and some of whom were there every single day protesting outside the courthouse. And and these aren't people, you know, who are just, you know, rich and bored and just, hey, we want to go protest somewhere, and we thought, you know, Vegas would be a good place. I mean, these are people who are sacrificing pretty deep on, on some levels in order to be there, but it mattered enough to them that they're willing to give up comfort, in uh, their own comfort, in order to go out there and stand with other people. Those numbers are terrifically small compared to the population in general, but that doesn't worry me so much because 
it typically only takes a very small but very dedicated minority to to make significant change yeah, happen the, throughout society eventually. Yeah, doesn't it only take 10% to get people riled up and 10% yeah, of the population to fight for freedom or fight for whatever? I, the study that I saw, um, I can't remember which Polytechnical Institute uh, had done the study, but they, they talked about how at 10%, if 10% of the populace holds an idea, and I mean like really believes an idea, that idea will generally from that point spread through the rest of the populace with with very little resistance. Interesting. Kind of interesting, huh? Yeah. Well, I uh, I definitely have become more aware, not just because, although I, admittingly because of Bunkerville, I've been paying a lot more attention to what's going on. Um, maybe I've kind of dropped the attention a little bit on some other things, but I certainly feel more aware and you know, this kind of started for me way back when I was just a kid. But I remember hearing about Randy Weaver and thinking, and I, I, I'm sure you did too at the time, when we were oblivious to a lot of things before the Internet really took off. That I remember thinking Randy Weaver was just a nut job and the government must have gone after him for a reason. And then I remember him getting hey, off... Oh, what? Isn't that how everybody's portrayed, though? Yeah. Initially? Yeah. All we know is, oh, they took him away in cuffs, and there were cops and guns, and oh, somebody got shot. And, and we're, we're left with the official narrative, which tells us, you know, little about the person, but all we know is it's bad. It's really bad. And when you look at it a little bit closer, you know, it, it turns out to be much, much different. Yeah, that's what I did. I was bored one Saturday afternoon back in uh, 2009, and... It was on a summer, summer Saturday afternoon, and looked up Randy Weaver, and I, I, by that point, I wondered if there was more to the story, just because I'd listened to a lot of talk radio between 1992 and 2009, but I really started educating myself at that point, and I'm sure you probably went through a similar thing that I did. Yeah, absolutely, and... I want people to understand, too, this isn't just a matter of, well, because we just wanted to justify being able to be grumpy about government or talk about how government is out of control. Um, anyone who has studied history can attest that it doesn't matter even what form of government. It's in the nature of government to expand, excuse me, to expand at the uh, expense of individual liberties. It's in its DNA. It will do it every time. And what yeah. the, the beautiful wisdom of the founding generation was in our system was they set up checks and balances, they divided, decentralized those powers, and then on top of that, they spelled them out. They enumerated them in the document that called the federal government into existence and, and made sure that if it wasn't mentioned, then the federal government did not have that power. And they backed it up with the Bill of Rights, which stated it again. But we've forgotten that. We've, we've moved away from that model to where people think government is the source of their rights, or at least it's the source of all their solutions. And, oh, yeah. And the problems it causes. Absolutely, and uh, that goes with another quote I've heard. Uh, the government is a lot like a garden. You have to weed it out every now and again. What do you think of that quote? I, I, think, uh, I think George Washington referred to it as fire. Oh, okay. And, and I think this was an apt, apt comparison because... Um, he talks about how fire is a uh, 
is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Yeah, it can be. And, and you know, pro- properly used, it can be extremely productive and helpful, but let it slip beyond its controls, let it slip beyond what, what you're doing to limit it, and it quickly becomes very destructive. Government oh, is yeah. no different, because force is the way that it accomplishes its goals. Absolutely. Well, um, I, th- I think we can end here on this note. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything I haven't mentioned? No. Thanks for doing this, Kevin. I, I do I appreciate you having an inquisitive mind and, you know, trying to, trying to get the word out. Yeah, well, I, I definitely, uh, the goal for this podcast is for people to get the word out and, uh, yeah, this is an LDS Life podcast, but uh, I could see it moving into other things. So having said that, I'll talk to you later, folks. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life podcast. To contact Kevin, email him at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Don't forget to check him out on iTunes and other podcast apps. And don't forget to like the podcast on Facebook at LDS Life Podcast.